What's the greatest obstacle to the forward progress of the gospel in this world? How would you answer that question? What's the greatest obstacle to the forward progress of the gospel in the world? Here's a hint. It doesn't come from outside of the church. It comes from inside the church itself. What is that obstacle? That obstacle is called disunity. You may not have noticed, but in these days, many of Christ's churches in this land are divided, divided over politics, divided over coronavirus, divided over immigration, divided over nationalism, divided over racism, divided over CRT, divided over gender roles. And and I could go on. There are dozens of fault lines of division in the church of Jesus Christ in this land. And let me be clear, just crystal clear. There are many churches that have split, many church members who have resigned their membership and left, many pastors who've been fired because of some of the issues I just raised earlier. And as a result, the gospel witness of Christ in this land has been either muted or marred. All because of this obstacle called disunity. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said this once. He said that discord in the church is the melody of Satan. But unity in the church is the music of heaven. And that is true. In God's kindness as a congregation, especially over this last year and a half, We have seen the Lord preserve the unity of this congregation. And for that, I and the elders are extremely grateful. Now, unity doesn't mean we all agree with each one or each other with every issue. It doesn't mean you don't have an opinion. But what it does mean is that I can honestly say that I have seen this congregation respond with maturity and in godliness in seeking to obey Ephesians 4.1 that says, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I've seen that. And I, and I want to point that out as an evidence of God's grace. I thank God for that unity. So, so the message that I'm about to preach should not be received by you as some type of prophetic rebuke. Instead, it's a pastoral reminder. It's a pastoral reminder. Uh, I developed a seasonal allergy many years ago when I moved to Northern Virginia. And I, anybody else? Raise your hand. It's okay. All right, one person. All right. I'll just talk to you, brother. Um, if you don't know about allergies, just pray you never know about, about them. But I, I realized quickly that if I don't begin to take my allergy medicine months before the problem shows up, much before months before the pollen appears, if I, don't, if I don't take it early, it's ineffective for me to start taking the medicine once the pollen is here. And in the same way, in the same way, The elders wisely instructed me a few weeks ago to devote one message before we jump back into the gospel according to Luke, just to devote one message to the unifying mind of Christ 
as a kind of preemptive strike against any temptation towards disunity in this local church. So this message isn't a rebuke. It's a reminder to take your medicine. It's a, put, put a little reminder in your calendar like I do in January to start taking my allergy medicine. This is a reminder on how Jesus Christ prizes the unity of his church. And if Jesus prizes it, we should too. So to that end, all of that's prefaced. To that end, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 4. And if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 980. And as you turn there, as you swipe there, let me just remind you of the context. The Apostle Paul wrote Philippians while he was languishing in prison. He was in a Roman prison, and this epistle of joy that Philippians is often called was written by the Apostle who had planted the church at Philippi about 10 years earlier. So 10 years go by, he finds himself in prison in Rome. He hears that the church was facing the temptation to be divided. And because he loves this church, he writes this short letter, Philippians, to this church that was being tempted to divide. It was written by an old man in a Roman prison 2,000 years ago to a fledgling congregation in a Roman colony. Now, what has happened before we get to chapter 2? Let's just think about what he said in chapter 1 really briefly. Paul begins by greeting the Philippians and then he prays for the church to grow together in love. Chapter 1 verses 9 to 11. Then he models how to rejoice together for the forward progress of the gospel. Chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. And then he exhorts the Philippians in verses 27 to 30 of chapter 1 to live lives together worthy of the gospel of Christ as citizens of heaven. And then he gets to chapter 2 and in our passage this morning in four verses, he provides... Spirit-filled instructions for a local church that was on the brink of splitting up. They faced conflicts from without, but Paul addresses most specifically the conflicts within the church. And in Philippians 2, 1 to 4, the Apostle Paul provides the motivations, the mindset, and the mandate for unity. He provides the motivations for unity, verse 1, the mindset for unity, verse 2, and the mandate for unity, verses 3 and 4. So if you're taking notes, you've got the Christ-honoring motivations for unity, verse 1. The Christ-like mindset for unity, verse 2. And the Christ-issued mandate for unity, verses 3 and 4. And let me read the passage, and then we'll dive right in. This is what Scripture says. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy 
by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord and of one mind or purpose. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant, more important than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. My prayer is that the Lord would grant to our congregation the grace of humility that continually empowers us to glorify God with one voice together. That's my prayer. Number one, the Christ honoring motivations for unity. Look again at verse one. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, and by the way, you see this this if language, if this, if this, if this, then. Paul isn't using that structure, that that, that if then structure to, to, to consider that this might not be true. He's assuming that it's true. So the idea is if there's any encouragement in Christ, and there is, if there is any comfort from love, and there is, if there's any participation in the spirit, and there is any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy. So you see right there in verse one, your Bible may have the word. So that first word, so, or therefore the unity that he was talking about at the end of chapter one, he's drawing an inference at a conclusion based on what he's just said. He's still talking about this theme of unity, striving together as citizens of heaven. And in verse one, he reminds the church notice of four glorious Gospel blessings. Gospel blessings that every Christian in Philippi already possessed. These gospel blessings function as gospel motivations for unity. So think of it this way. Imagine the church at Philippi is a ship and Paul is the captain of the ship. And he's trying to safely navigate the ship into a port called unity. Well, the wind in the sails of that ship are these gospel blessings. The wind in the sails, the the power behind these exhortations to unity are these amazing blessings that the, that the, the Philippians already share together in Christ. They will not arrive safely into port without them. What are those? There's four of them. Number one, it's right there in verse one. First, there is encouragement for you in Christ. There's encouragement for you in Christ. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, Paul begins by reminding the church of the great, glorious encouragement that is theirs because they are united to Christ. Our glorious union with Christ is the basis of our glad unison in the body of Christ. Our glorious union with Christ is the basis of our glad unison in the body of Christ. What does it mean to be united to Christ? Do you see that little phrase in Christ? No, don't look at me, look at your Bibles. You see that little phrase in Christ? That's Paul's shorthand for a Christian. The the Lord has given you the gift of faith by the spirit that unites you to Jesus Christ. And so from that point forevermore, you are in Christ. 
You belong to Christ. You're united to Christ. And once you're in Christ, you'll never be out of Christ. Amen? We were born into this world in Adam, but by the Spirit of God, we've been born again in Christ, the last Adam. Now, you may be thinking, yeah, I know this. So basically, Paul's telling him right at the beginning, be encouraged that you're a Christian. But, but we don't wake up every morning and we hit the alarm clock and we say, man, it feels great to be a Christian. I mean, some of you may do that, right? We just kind of assume it. But I just want to take a minute and just remind you of all the encouragement that there is found for you in that identity as someone who is in Christ just in the letter to the Philippians. I'm just going to mention a few things. If you're in Christ, Paul says in chapter one, verse one, you're a saint. You're you've been saved by Christ. You've been set apart as holy unto the Lord. You're a saint. Chapter one, verse one. If you're in Christ, he says in chapter one, verse six, that the Lord has begun a good work in you and he's going to carry it to completion until the day of Christ. That's that's encouragement, isn't it? If Christ has finished his work for you, well, surely he's going to finish his work within you. That's good news. That's encouragement. There's a day coming when you will be presented blameless and holiness before him in love. Chapter one, verse 21. If you're in Christ, then your life is Christ and death for you is gain. That's encouragement this morning. You can face death knowing that if you live, it's for Christ's sake. And if you die, it is gain. Chapter one, verse 21. Chapter three, verse nine. If you're in Christ, then guess what? You're counted righteous in the sight of God, not because of anything you have done, not according to the righteousness of the law, but that which is by faith, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Chapter three, verse nine. If you're in Christ, Here's some more encouragement. You're a citizen of heaven. Chapter three, verse 20. He says, our citizenship is in heaven from which we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies into conformity with the body of his glory by the power that he has to subject all things to himself. Did you wake up this morning thinking, I cannot wait to be glorified? (laughs) That's what Paul is telling them. This, and who's writing this? Someone who has chains on his hands, who's, in, who's, who's a prisoner, in, he's, in, he's in a Roman prison, and he's reminding them one day, no more sin, no more Satan, no more struggle. You will be made like Christ in the resurrection. Last one. If you're in Christ, you don't need to be anxious this morning. Here's what you have to be anxious about. Be anxious for nothing, Paul says. Be anxious for nothing. Chapter four, verses six and seven. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the God of peace. Who's God, he will he will supply you with peace that surpasses all understanding. Brothers and sisters, God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Chapter four, verse 19. So we could just close in prayer here, but I just want you to see just in this letter. Do you see all the reasons you should be encouraged this morning in Christ? 
There is encouragement for you there. Number two, there's comfort for you from God's love. There's comfort for you from God's love. Do you see that? So if there's any comfort from love, your Bible may say consolation. It may say solace. That's a great word. This morning, if you're in Christ, there is comfort knowing that God loves you. God brings comfort and consolation to distraught sinners through his blessed son in the gospel. And this comfort flows to you this morning from God's eternal heart of love. Some of you came this morning distraught. And Paul's words to you this morning are this. Simply that God loves you. Just meditate on that for a second. You didn't earn God's love. You didn't merit it. You can't work for it. And you can't sin your way out of it. He loved you right before the foundation of the world. We love him because he first what? Loved us. He loved, listen, he loved us when we were what? His enemies. We love him because he first loved us. He has demonstrated his love eternally for us on the cross through his blessed son. And he has poured out his love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he's given to us. Brothers and sisters, you are loved by God. There's encouragement for you and comfort from his love. Number three, there's fellowship. There's fellowship for you in the Holy Spirit. So if there is any participation or fellowship or communion in the Spirit, and by Spirit there, I think it should be capitalized. Some of our translations capitalize that Spirit, and I think that's the right way to understand that. Notice so far, there's a, there's a triune aspect going on here. It's, it's in Christ, love of the Father, and now it's participation of the Spirit. Believers experience a relationship with God because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So think about this. This is, this is so important. Think about this. The fellowship, the communion, the participation of the church of Jesus Christ is not, listen, founded upon American citizenship or ethnicity or uh, political parties or socioeconomic status or your, your particular position on schooling or on masking or whoever you're going to vote for. That's not the basis of our fellowship. The basis of our fellowship is that we are united. We have participation in God, the spirit, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of truth, the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out what? Abba, father. That is the the basis of our fellowship. Listen, brothers and sisters, accept no other basis of Christian fellowship. If somebody's selling you, you've got to believe this, this and this, and it's not in this book, they're selling you a lie. Paul says this is the basis of our fellowship. The spirit has been given to us as a pledge of our future inheritance. 
He's the guarantee from God that we belong to God as the people of God. He lives within us. He empowers us. He leads us. He gifts us. He guides us. He strengthens us. He helps us. He holds us. He sanctifies us. And you dishonor the spirit of God. You grieve the spirit of God. When you try to make something else the basis of our fellowship and our communion. The last thing we say before the service is over every Lord's Day. Do you remember what it is? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the what? And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all forever. Amen. We're reminding ourselves as we leave that we leave this place maybe disagreeing over a countless number of things. But we find our unity and our fellowship in the triune God. Number four, there is affection and sympathy for you in the church. You see it right there at the end. So if there is any affection and sympathy, Paul concludes verse one with a reminder of the gospel blessings we enjoy in the church. And he references their tenderness or or sympathy and compassion and affection. And brothers and sisters, I've seen this play itself out in this local church. I've seen brothers and sisters caring for one another and serving one another and praying for one another and visiting one another and trying to serve. I've seen it even this week. And so I just want to point out God's grace is working in the life of this church. Now, maybe you're visiting this morning and you're looking for the perfect church. We'll keep looking because we ain't perfect, right? Now, and, and it wouldn't be perfect as soon as you join the church, right? Amen. Welcome to Franklin Baptist Church, right? Charles Purgeon said the church, listen, the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace who need all the help they can get. The church, brothers and sisters, is a hospital for the sick. It is a nursery for the weak. And it's not a crutch for people that need intellectual help. It's a place where the dead are raised. (laughs) We need more than a crutch. We need resurrection. And so, brothers and sisters, consider all of these gospel blessings this morning. And remember that all of these blessings have been given to you freely. In Christ through the gospel. And why is he doing this? Just think about it. Don't just ask, what is Paul saying? Ask, why is he doing this? He's doing this for simply this reason. He front loads all of these amazing eternal realities because he wants his readers to be reminded of what we have in common. When you put these realities over and against some petty small, relatively temporal concern of yours that you want to divide the church over, it is dwarfed in light of these eternal realities. And that's why Paul is talking about them. These are the Christ-honoring motivations for unity. He wants us to put our petty disagreements in an eternal perspective. That's the first point, and it is the longest point, so don't be worried. Number two, number two. Number two, the Christ-like mindset for unity. Verse two, what is the Christ-like mindset for unity? 
Now, on the basis of these benefits he's just talked about in verse one, he's going to call us in verse two to pursue a certain mindset. Verse two, there's the command. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. Or your Bible may say purpose. Now, again, I want you to pause and just think about this. If you were languishing in a Roman prison with chains on your hands and you were surrounded by the Praetorian Guard and you were facing execution and I asked you, what would bring you joy? My answer would be getting out of jail, getting these chains off my hands, getting off death row. That would bring me joy. The Apostle Paul says there's one thing that would bring me joy. There is one thing that would complete or bring my joy to fulfillment. And that is hearing that you, that church in Philippi, have one mind and one purpose. That you have the same mindset. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. Now, when I cook, I need about three or four ingredients Any more than that, I just start to wing it. You can ask Allison. I just, I can't deal with recipes with a lot of ingredients and steps. Well, the ingredients for this recipe of this Christ-like mindset, there's three ingredients. Number one, the first ingredient. Paul says the first ingredient of this Christ-like mindset for unity, he says right there, being of the same mind. Being of the same mind. What Paul is getting at is that the Philippians must have the same mindset. In other words, a different translation, they need to get on the same page. Um, choirs, when they sing, they, they, when they're trying to sing in unison, um, they can't all be using a different set of music, right? They have to be on the same page. They have to be singing the same notes, right? The same music. And that's what Paul's saying here. Paul is not saying that this that the same mindedness is some kind of cultish group think. Like if you join a church, you can't have an opinion anymore or that you can't give feedback or you can't disagree. It's not what he's saying. He's saying that the church has to get on the same page. Now take your Bibles and just flip over to chapter four, verse two, chapter four, verse two. You might be wondering what was going on in Philippi? Well, Paul tells us what was going on. Apparently there were two women named Euodia and Syntyche who were arguing in the church. And that was what was threatening the unity of the church. Look at chapter four, verse two. After all this exhortation to unity, he says, I entreat Euodia and I treat Syntyche, notice this phrase, to agree in the Lord. You see that? That's the same exact phrase that he says earlier, be of the same mind. Same phrase. So he's... He's calling the church to have a, uh, uh, the same mind. He, that our, listen, our posture as a church should lean towards unity. Doesn't mean you don't divide over really important issues, but our posture should assume the best of others, not presume false motives, to value harmony in the church, to seek to agree in the Lord. That's the first ingredient. Ingredient number two. Having the same love. You see it right there in the middle of verse two. Having the same love. So the Philippians have been loved 
by the same God who is love. And now they're to keep loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. Remember earlier, remember what Paul prayed for earlier in Philippians? He says in chapter one, verse nine, and this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment that you may be approved what is excellent and so be pure and blameless until the day of Christ having been filled up with all the fruits of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You see, Paul prays for love, that the same love that God has shown us would abound in the hearts of the Philippians. And that a same eternal love that God has lavished on you, listen, he has also lavished on the, the Christian, the church member sitting right next to you. I want you to think right now, who is the one church member in this congregation that you're the most tempted, that you're the most tempted to quarrel with? Now, you're probably thinking of Nick. Nick. (laughs) Whoever that person is, think of that person. Now, think about this. John Newton said, in a little while you will meet in heaven and he or she will be dearer to you then. Than the, than the dearest friend you have on earth is right now. You have the same love. That's the second ingredient. Third ingredient. Third ingredient of this Christ-like mindset is being in full accord and of one mind. Your Bible may say something like united in spirit and intent on one purpose. Paul's getting at the same idea in different ways. He's simply trying to highlight this Christ-like mindset produces harmony, produces harmony. Now, college football, something near and dear to my heart, began this last weekend. And if you notice, there were fans in the stands. And I wonder if you noticed that, that the fans in the stands, they all have the same love, right? They have the same passion. They have the same purpose. They want their, their team to win. And that binds them together in harmony, doesn't it? Well, it's, a, it's, it's even a greater thing in the church that because we have the same love, because we have the same fellowship, because we have the same Christ as our Lord, all of that is supposed to bind us together in a kind of harmony. Listen to what Paul says in another place. He says this, put on, this is Colossians 3.12. Listen, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, Meekness, patience, bearing with one another. You hear that? Bearing with, there there are people in the church you have to bear with, you have to put up with. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And then listen to what he says at the end. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's conclude by asking the question, how do we practically do this? How do we like how do you how do you know that you have the same mindset? How how do you have this this Christ centered mindset? How do you know? How do you practically put this into practice? Well, concluding our time, number three, the Christ issued mandate for unity. Verses three and four in these last two verses, the risen Christ the one who is the Lord of glory 
issues a divine mandate for the unity of the church through his servant, his ambassador in chains, the Apostle Paul. Now, I realize some of you cringe when you hear the word mandate. Um, I realize some of us have had it up to here with government issued mandates. Maybe that's you this morning. But I want you to make no mistake, okay? The mandate issued in this passage does not come from a uh, does not come from a lame duck governor in Richmond. It comes from the throne of God Almighty. It comes from the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. So what is his blood bought mandate? For his church. Look at verses three and four. Here's how we put this into practice. And listen to how comprehensive this is. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant or more important as yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do nothing from, your Bible may say, selfishness or conceit. Paul is saying that we should do nothing in the church from a kind of party spirit. Partisanship, having factions, a party spirit, that has no place in the church. Look at 1 Corinthians 3 on this. I follow Paul, I follow Peter, I follow Stephen. None of that. Paul says no partisanship, no party spirit, no selfishness. And it's often, not always, but it's often the case that when disunity arises in a congregation, it's because a worldly partisan mindset has been adopted. And that mindset is very noticeable because it's full of self Self-righteousness, self-confidence, self-sufficiency, self-admiration, self-love. Listen to me. We expect to find selfishness in the world. We should not find it in the church. Selfish ambition focuses on I and me at the expense of us and we. If you find yourself saying I, I, me, me, I, I, that should be a little... A little light going on. Selfish ambition and conceit are weeds. They are weeds that grow in the soil of individualism. And you've got to listen. And you need more than Roundup to kill these things. You listen, you are selfish. You are conceited by nature. And so am I. Amen. I didn't hear, amen? (laughs) I don't think you believe me. When you were a baby, if I were to interview your mom and dad, I can almost guarantee you the first words you ever spoke were no, that's conceit, and mine, that's selfishness. (laughs) Let's do some children's ministry, amen? We owe this selfish nature to our parents, Adam and Eve. They rebelled against God in the garden. They did what was right in their own eyes. They listened to the voice of the creature instead of the voice of their creator who gave them life and breath and everything. 
And they took of the tree of the, of the fruit that God had said not to eat and they ate of it. And that act of disobedience plunged the entire human race into an abyss of sin. And now we have to pray that God helps us not to be inclined towards selfish gain. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain, David prayed. Sin, according to Martin Luther, it curves us in on ourselves. Do you realize that? Sin curves you in on yourself so that all you think about is me, me, I, me. That's it. And it takes the gospel of his grace to bend us back to where we can actually look around at the needs of others, the needs of our neighbor. So that we can love others and lay down our lives in the service of others. So Christian, over this last year or maybe even this last week, have you focused more on the exercise of your own liberty? Have you prized more your own rights and you've never considered laying down your rights in the service and sacrifice of others? Christian, is there any sense of entitlement that you need to confess of and repent of and put to death this morning? Selfishness in the church is a threat to the unity of the church because James tells us where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Now, what's the antidote to selfishness? Right there, verse three. The answer is one word, humility. Do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility. There it is. Count yourselves Count others, excuse me, more significant, more important than yourselves. Pride curves us in on ourselves, but the mind of Christ humbly leads us to look to care for others. Look at verse four. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Imagine what the church in this land would look like if we obeyed that verse. You realize verse four, that's basically a summary of the second greatest commandment. Jesus says the first, the first commandment, right, is to love who? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your what? Neighbor as yourself. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, it means to look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. The humble person comes to meet with God's people on the Lord's day and says, how can how can I serve God's people today? Help me to see others. Help me to seek the well-being of others. Make me a blessing to this church. Help me to bear others burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is the Christ issued mandate. In one word, it is humility. Humility. If you want a summary of this whole passage in three words, it's unity through humility, unity through humility, a church split almost always centers around pride. John Stott, one of one of the best pastors of the last hundred years, wrote these words. Listen, at every stage of our Christian life and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy. And humility is our greatest friend. 
Pride is our greatest enemy. And humility is our greatest friend. Three brief applications and then we'll sing and we'll be done. First, let's humble ourselves together before the Lord in prayer. Let's humble ourselves together before the Lord in prayer. A praying church is a humble church. A praying church remembers that apart from Christ, we can do what? Nothing. The church in this land has forgotten in large measure that we can do nothing without relying on Christ. So if you want to join us on Wednesday for prayer meetings, if you want to pick up a church directory and pray for the members of this church, if you want to pray for the unity of the church, on the last night, the Lord Jesus, in his last night during his earthly ministry, in John 17, remember what he prayed for? He prayed in John 17, 21, that those who believed him in him through the apostles' words, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, and I are one. So let's pray what Christ prayed for together as a church. Let's humble ourselves and pray for the unity of this congregation as well as the church in this land and the church around the world. Number two, let's humble ourselves together before the cross of Christ. The mindset described in this passage is the mind of Christ. Don't miss that. Where am I getting that? Look at verse five. What does he say in verse five? Have this what? Say it. Let's try that again. Have this what? Mind. This mindset. Well, where can we see this mind? Have this mind, this mindset in yourselves, which was also yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account quality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave or a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself. There it is. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, if you're here, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. This mindset of humility begins by bowing the knee to Christ, the one who has been exalted as Lord over all. He came, he humbled himself, he died for the sins of his people, for the sins of anyone who would ever turn from their sins and trust in Christ. And so the invitation stands for you to trust in him this morning. And Christian, in light of verses 5 to 11, let this be a reminder to us that there is no pride or bickering or selfishness when we're standing in the shadow of the cross. 
Thirdly and finally, let's humble ourselves before the Lord in his service, in his service. Remember when Jesus was walking with his disciples to Jerusalem and they reached Capernaum? Remember, Jesus said, what were you guys discussing on the, along the way? And they, sh- they didn't say anything because they had argued with one another along the way about which one of them was the greatest. Imagine hanging out with Jesus and wondering, I wonder who's the greatest. And Jesus says, well, if anybody would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. The disciples didn't get it, did they? They, they? they went on a little further and down the road, James and John come up to Jesus and they say, let us sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. And the other 10 disciples, they heard about this request. Remembering what happened, they became indignant. You see, pride produces what? Disunity. And Jesus looks at them and says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and the great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among, it, among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, we serve the suffering servant who was numbered among the transgressors for our sins. We serve the Lord of glory who became a servant. We serve the one who gave his life as our ransom. And so the only fitting response is we get to serve him. When's the last time you were amazed, astounded that the one who has no needs invites you to serve him? The greatest obstacle to the forward progress of the gospel in the world does not come from outside the church. It comes from within the church. What obstacle is that? It is the obstacle of prideful disunity. And the solution is the humble, unifying mind of Christ. Earlier in the service, we actually sang this sermon. I don't know if you remember. The whole sermon was in a song earlier. You remember? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and Father, humble us. Humble us this day before your great majesty and lift us up to serve one another and to serve the world, to serve our neighbors. 
because of your matchless grace. We ask this in Jesus, our great Savior's sake. Amen.